You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, last week, we talked about the idea that we are idol factories and that we are really good at taking a good thing and making it a ultimate, or we said a God thing. And then what we saw last week is that God used a storm in the life of Jonah to give him just enough air and just enough room to think about what was at the center of his life. And what we saw at the center of Jonah's life was something that was good, uh, it was his country of Israel that was God's chosen people. But, but he took a good thing and he made it the thing that was at the center of his life and he made it a God thing. Well, today I want to kind of continue that thought that we began last week. And you know, it's always great when um, you're blessed when your own sermon is reflected back on you. And man, I want you to know how great of a feeling this is. So Marlon and I were running uh, Monday morning, we dropped the kids off and trying to get in a quick run. And so all of a sudden she says, so what are some of your idols? And I tell you, I did the only appropriate thing. I started breathing really hard and acting like that I was really struggling to run and hoping that she would just absolutely figure out, well, he couldn't hear me or that she would just leave the subject alone. But I have thought a lot about that this week is what are some things that God has blessed me with but I've made them more important than they need to be, or I've put them at the center of my life. And I realized that, man, I have that problem too, where I take a good thing and I make it a God thing. And I've also thought about another truth this week, is that if God is not at the center of your lives, and that's kind of what we talked about all last week, if He is not at the center of our lives, what happens is that we allow culture, or maybe society, to define us. What I mean by that is if God is not at the center of our lives, we look for significance in a lot of other things. We look at it in the society and we allow them to define what gives me worth or what makes me significant. You know, we would look at things like this. Our culture would say things that give you significance or that make you important are being defined by being married at a certain age or having a certain type of career. That's what gives you significance or value. You know, children that are successful at this or that, and if they are, then, oh, well, then you're important. It could even be that it's shown to us that you have to look a certain way to really be important. You need to have a certain size or type home, and, oh, those are the ones. Well, they, they are the ones that really matter. You know, or it could even be just the things that we wear that you have to look a certain way. And I mean, I even know there are people out there that if you've got a problem with style, man, they'll help you figure out what your style is. They'll even go shopping for you, put it in a box, and send it to your house. I mean, it being, and that's what it is. It's what happens when God is not the center of our lives. Then we allow everything else to kind of show us or to communicate to us then what is important or where I'm going to find my significance or where I find worth. But the good news for us is this. That when the grace of God invades your life, you are freed from all of that. And listen, there is nobody that is beyond living 
underneath other expectations or allowing things to define, then what makes me significant? What, what gives me value? What makes me worthy? Well, today we're going to look into the life of a person, into a family, and even into a culture, and we're going to see some amazing things going on. This is such a great example for us today. We've been walking through people of the Old Testament that have been foreshadowing for us the person, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we're going today look at a woman. We're going to look in the life of a woman who was utterly hopeless, but she moves to ultimate blessing. We're going to see a person move from being defined by their culture to a place that the only thing that defines them was who they were to God. Today we're going to look at the story of Ruth. And so if you have your Bibles or your electronic device, I want to invite you to find the book of Ruth. As you're finding there, I'll just kind of bring you up to speed that to really fully appreciate the story of Ruth, we need to understand two things. One... The first thing we need to understand is what drives a person to leave one country for another. It is the mindset of why a person would immigrate from one place to another. You know, I've known in my life a a few immigrants, true immigrants, that have left a country with absolutely nothing and moved to the United States. Now, I'm not talking about somebody that, you know, moves from Louisiana to Texas. We're not talking about that. I'm talking somebody that moves from another place of the world that comes to the United States looking for something. Over the past few months, man, I've watched incredible stories of people leaving northern Africa and even Syria trying to get into Europe and just boats full of people, overflowing with people of just trying to get to Europe where the doors are open for them to come. Or or it would be watching a, a truck that is completely packed full of people and they open up the back of that truck that people are struggling to breathe in unbearable temperatures. And every person that I've ever heard interviewed or talked to by the news media, everybody has always said this. Every account you listen to, why would they do this? Why would they risk their life? It is always of the hopes of a better life. You never read about some person risking their life for a worse life than they already have. It's always in the premise of leaving something in hopes of something better. Until we're going to look at the story of Ruth today. The second thing we need to understand to fully uh, or better grasp this letter of Ruth is that we need to understand that what a Hebrew society or a culture defined a person that was worthy or how they gained significance in that culture. In some ways it's very similar, in some ways it was different. But one of the things, if you were a Jew, there were things that would give you significance. And here was one of them. One would be being a Jew. You were a chosen race. You were God's special people. And that gave you worth. In fact, God says that he was using them to be an example that they were to live their lives and other people were to look and to go, why are those people doing? Why are they living the way they're living? And they were supposed to then give an account. It's because we were following the one and the only God. Well, they turned it and they used it as a thing of prestige that no one else mattered as much as they did. Another thing that gave you worth or value was being married. That increased your significance, that increased your worth, was being married. A third thing was your family name. Your family name mattered. And according to what family you were in, that gave you more significance. 
A fourth one, children, especially sons. Having a son, man, that meant something. It meant you were then going to have somebody that would come alongside, learn your trade. You would then pass your things down through your sons. And a fifth thing that gave you significance, that gave you worth, that gave you value was having land. So if you were a Jew, you were married, you had a great family name, you had sons, and you had land. In a lot of ways, we can see, yes, there are things in our own lives that they're very similar to back in this time. But that is what gave a Jew uh, significance or worth. So when God is not at the center of our lives, we allow culture to define to define us and to set our level of significance and worth. But the good news is that when God's grace invades your life, you are absolutely freed from all of those things. We're going to see exactly this from the book of Ruth this morning. In the book of Ruth, I'm going to pull out three redeemers. One of them, very familiar. If you've ever read through this book, you know one of those guys is going to be the kinsman redeemer. We're going to talk about him. But I also want to show you kind of a hidden or a, a, a less known redeemer. And then last, I want to pull out what is the ultimate redeemer. So hopefully you have found the book of Ruth. Let's begin in chapter 1. Verse 1, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start at the beginning. We're going to kind of go to the end. We're going to have to come back to the the, uh, beginning, middle for a little bit. And then we're going to go back to the end. So we're going to kind of ping pong back and forth to this book of Ruth. So verse 1 begins this way. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judea went sojourning, traveling to the country of Moab. He and his wife and his Two sons. So we have a Jew, we have a person who has land, he's going to have a name, and he has sons. It says in verse 2, and the name of him was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And they had two sons, Maholan and Chilion. And they were from the tribe of Ephraim. So there's their name. So it's a Jew that has a name, that has land, has sons. From Bethlehem in Judea. And they went to the country of Moab, and they remained here. So we have this Jewish family consisting of a mother, a father, and two sons from the tribe of Ephraim. And this family had everything at one time. They had land, they had sons, they had a name, they had significance, and they had worth. But what happens is a famine moves through the land, and they set out for Moab. Now, Moab was bitter enemies. With Israel. I mean, these would be people that would never come together. You would never see an Israelite intermingling with a, Mo, a person from the tribe of Moab. But what happened is this family was slowly stripped of everything that defined their significance. Famine moves in, and guess what they have to do? They have to sell their land just to survive. And when they do that, then they have to leave their own country. So they're leaving their place, they're leaving everything that they know behind. So they leave their home, they sell their land. And it's also important to note that you have this Israelite family, and these two sons are named after Canaanite people. So I believe this is showing us that Elimelech was actually beginning to move away from following God. He's moved out of his homeland, he's moved to the the country of Moab, and his sons have Canaanite names. So it gets worse. Look at verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, dies. And she is left with two sons. 
they took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. But both sons die. And so that the women are left without her sons and her husband. So the focus on Naomi is that she is now a Jewish woman that now has no land, no husbands, no sons, and no name to carry on. She is absolutely without hope. In fact, Naomi, at this point, for her to survive, she only has four options. The only thing at her disposable would be, one, to work the fields. She could go out and she could find a field that she could work, but we're about to see in chapter 4, she's too old for that. She could get married. She could get married, but according to chapter 4, she is too old. She's past childbearing years. A third option she has is that she could have children to support her. What has happened to her sons? They have both died, and she is without grandchildren. Or she could rent out her land, but she now has no land. And we have this story about Naomi that is absolutely hopeless. So what we see is a Jewish woman beyond hope, and all she has is two Moabite daughter-in-laws. And according to culture, according to the society around her, she is absolutely worthless. No husband, no sons, no children, no name, no land, and she is completely hopeless. But Naomi believes in a God that loves to show up in big ways when things seem to be beyond hope. Look at verse 6. Then she rose with her daughter-in-law to return to the country of Moab. but Because she had heard the facts of the Moab and that the Lord had visited the people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Go, return uh, each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. So she watched how these two Moabite daughter-in-laws respected her. They watched how they had mourned the death of her sons. But she knows that she hears rain has returned. The famine is over. So she is now going to journey back to her country. But she has no land, no husband, no name, and no children. She knows there is absolutely no hope. And she has no use for two Moabite daughters who have not given birth to any children. So what she does, she tries to, to convince her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, to go back to their mother's house. So right now, these two women, like Naomi, you know what? They have absolutely nothing. But if they go back to their homeland, you know what they could do? They could remarry. It isn't too late for them to have children. They could go back to, it says, go back to your mother's house where you now have a roof over your head. You now have land again. You now have a way to provide for your family. They could go back. They could find new husbands, begin a family again, and they actually could one day then have a future. So going back home basically gives them a fresh start. It gives them a new life. But in a moment, we're about to see what causes Ruth to abandon all of that, to follow Naomi. Skip forward to verse 15. So she said, See, 
Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return with her. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you to return to following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So Ruth was willing to give up a future and a meaningful life to follow Naomi. She knows that Naomi is returning to a Jewish land where she as a widowed Moabite will not be welcomed at all. In fact, she is going at the risk of her own life. But I want us to see how God is going to work through this hopeless situation. So let me kind of fast forward for us a little bit. So Naomi and Ruth, they go back to Bethlehem. They go back to the tribe uh, or the region of Judah. And Ruth must find a way to make some money or to get some food just to provide for her and her mother, mother-in-law. But Ruth said, you know, go back, but she follows with her anyway. So what does Ruth do? She goes out and she finds a field to glean in. So if you were a Jewish landowner, there was a, a law that you could plant your fields and you could harvest them, but you had to leave the edges of your field. You were not allowed to touch them. And that was so that the poor could come and they could pick around the edge of the field, and it was called gleaning, where they would get just enough gleaning, just enough grain to go and make bread for that day. So Naomi is out at the risk of her own, I mean, Ruth is out at the risk of her own life, gleaning in a field of Jewish people. Well, up comes the landowner. Boaz comes and he's looking out and he sees this one lady that's gleaning with the poor people. He doesn't recognize her probably. So he begins asking some questions and the people begin to tell him, oh, this is, her name is Ruth and she came with Naomi and they traveled from uh, she's a Moabite. They came from the, the, that land. But she is here. She is gleaning because she's trying to provide for her mother-in-law who lost her husband and lost her two sons. And she came with her. And this impresses Boaz. Boaz finds when he sees her, he goes up and he finds favor with her. And he's impressed by what she does for her mother-in-law in chapter 2. And so Boaz is moved by Ruth's compassion. So Look at chapter 2, verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that you are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So Boaz does something remarkable here for her. Boaz says to her, listen, do not go to any other field because he knows her life would be in danger. And he moves her not from the outside edges. He moves her to the center of the field where she is no longer having to glean. She's actually being able to harvest with everyone else. And in fact, Boaz even told the men, do not Touch her. Because many times they could have gone, they could have taken advantage of a woman that was gleaning on the outside field, especially if they found out she had no worth and she had no value. 
She's not Jew. She has no name. She has no husband. She has no land. She is worthless. So do with her what you want. But Boaz is moved with compassion. He tells the men not to touch her. He moves her to the center of the field where she now gets to go and drink from the same vessel as the other Jews are. And she's able to harvest from the center of the field. And this is huge for Boaz. Because you know that Boaz is from the same family as Naomi. Chapter 3, turn there quickly. Verse 4. We're going to see Naomi uh, put a plan in place. And she's smart, and, you know, and so there's wisdom in being uh, of an old age, and she has a plan. In chapter 3, verse 4, she tells Ruth to go to the thrashing floor. What they would do, they would gather the grain, and when the winds would come in the evening, it was just a consistent wind that would come off the bay. They would throw the grain in the air. The wind would blow the chafe away, and the grain would fall. And she says, go to the floor, and you know what? You're going to find Boaz there. And she says, the evening is going to go on and he's going to become tired. He's going to lay down. What I want you to do, I want you to just uncover his feet and you're going to simply lay at his feet. Don't say anything. Just lay there. Look at verse 9 of chapter 3. She does that and he says, who are you? So he is woken and he's startled by it. He says, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Basically, she says, you, Boaz, are my only hope. You are my only hope in this. In fact, she says, marry me. She cover me, cover me with your, your wings, for you are my redeemer. And Boaz is completely moved by this proposal because, you know, he is older in age. And he knows that, man, she's got all, there's all these younger men around. But he is moved by this. But the redemption isn't complete yet. So years earlier, God knows what he's doing all the time. And years earlier, God divided up all the land of Israel. And he'd given it to certain tribes and it was yours. And, but he knew at certain times there would be people that would fall on hard times. He knew there was probably going to come a time where you were going to have to sell your land. So he puts two provisions in place. One is called the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, if you sold your land, your sons or your grandchildren, your grandsons were able to go back to that land and reclaim it as their own. So if I had to sell my land, you know, 50 years goes by, my son or my grandson could go back to that land and reclaim it. The 50-year Jubilee. Another thing that was possible God put in place was that somebody could come that was from my same line. They would have to be a Kirkendall. They would have to be a male. And they would have to have a child, a son, that this land could be passed on to. And they could come and buy back that land. So God puts these provisions in place. So Boaz does some research. He goes out to see, is there anybody else in line that could come and to redeem this land? First of all, they'd have to be of the same tribe. They would have to be male. They would have to have a son to pass it on to. If you didn't have all three of those, it wouldn't work. Boaz finds somebody, and the guy's excited. He's thinking, man, I'm about to have some more land. This is going to be great. Until he finds out, but there's one condition. You are going to have to marry, because they're, they're going to redeem it for Naomi. You're going to have to marry her daughter-in-law who is a Moabite. And the man's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hands on, I'm not about to do that because he knows his worth and his significance is about to go down. So Boaz 
realizes that he is now next in line. And Boaz is excited about this opportunity. He is, in fact, he delights in this. But let me outline for us what is really about to go on in this transaction. Because they're about to take their sandals and you swap sandals and this is what you would do. But here's what Boaz is really doing. One, he is going to have to take on their debt as if it was his own. He did nothing. It's not like I took out a car loan and, and uh, I'm the one that did this and I'm getting the benefits of the car and somebody comes and buys. There's no benefits. He, he is coming and all he is doing is taking on their debt. Number two, he has to marry a Moabite woman. Third, all of his wealth at that moment now is about to come Naomi's. You know, it's great standing in the courthouse the other day with the Freemans. And, um, and they, we went through that process and they always ask you some questions just to make sure you are really ready to do this. One of the things they say is, are you willing to take on the responsibilities of their health and their education and all those things? And men were like, yes. And they always say, do you really understand that everything that you have is now theirs, that when you die, it passes on. Are you willing to let all of your wealth then pass on to them? So at this moment, when those sandals are exchanged, all of Boaz's wealth is about to come Naomi and Ruth's. They did nothing to earn it. They did nothing to even deserve it. But they are about to inherit all of his wealth. So Boaz not only pays their debt, but he gives them a whole new life of blessing, more than they could ever imagine. What was hers, debt, now becomes his. And what was his, blessing and wealth, now become theirs. Man, you see this great exchange happen. And what happens in this moment is Boaz is the formal kinsman redeemer of Naomi. And that is often how this story is taught, and it's so beautiful to see that this man gives, takes on everything that is negative of theirs, and he gives them everything of him that is positive to them. And this great exchange happened that he steps, and he doesn't have to, but he delights in being the kinsman redeemer of Naomi by remarrying Ruth. But there's another redeemer that is often overlooked. I want you to turn to chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13, we want to kind of pick up at the end of the story. So here's what happens. They are getting married, and it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went to her, and God gave her conception. She was, has born, and look, a son. At that moment, the redemption can now become full circle to where he redeems their land. He now has a son to pass it on to. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left this day without a Redeemer. And may His name be renowned in all of Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to you know, man, there was nothing that, that would push you to the head of the line or the top of the class if you would be Jew and you would have land and you would have a name and you would have seven sons. That was the perfect family, the perfect number. They're all sons. There would be nothing 
that, you know, you're going to be the guy that gets to come in the party and always has the one-upper. You know, you're going to come into some party and somebody's got this or that, and seven sons. I mean, that's all you have to do. But she says to Naomi that Ruth has been better to her than seven sons. What I want to show us here is that Naomi is not only redeemed by Boaz, who purchased her land and marries Ruth, that will provide a son for that land to be passed on to. That Naomi is redeemed through her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Because of Ruth, she is blessed more than seven sons. I mean, Naomi tried three times to get Ruth to go back to where she actually had a chance. But Ruth leaves that life of blessing defined by culture to be with Naomi. She could have went back. She could have remarried. She could have land. She could have everything. She could have had a brand new start. But she gives all of that up for a worse life. No immigrant has ever done this. So what would take, why would Ruth give up a life of blessing and go to a life of something else? Look all the way back to chapter 1, verse 16. I want to show you the key. In verse 16, Ruth says, May your God will be my God. And your translation there probably says God. And this God, that name was Elohim. And what that was, that was the very generic name of God. That would be like, you know, somebody referring to, you know, God is the big man upstairs. Or it's the guy that's got the filthy songs that wins an award and he wants to thank God. I mean, it is just the generic that there's something out there, or a supreme being maybe of some sort, but it's just the generic name for God. And she says, you know that God, he's your God and he'll be my God. But then there's a change. Look at verse 17. Then she says, May the Lord, there's just going to be all caps, lowercase and nose. That is the personal name of Yahweh. This is why Ruth is willing to leave a life of meaning and value and significance for a life of uncertainty. Because she knows now God personally. She knows God as Yahweh. And this is what is happening. She would rather be with God's people than to have a life that her culture says is meaningful. She is willing to give up a life of significance and worth defined by her culture to be with God and his people. So what we see is the only immigrant in history that has to be that leaves a country not in hopes of a better life, but expecting it to get worse. You know, by the world's standards, this is probably the worst decision Ruth could make. But what we see is that uh, we see in her life that unless God is at the center of your life, culture and society will define you. So here we see Ruth as a second kind of hidden redeemer because here's what Ruth does. Ruth impoverishes herself so that Naomi can become rich. She gives all of that up. She impoverishes herself where she is gleaning in a field, putting her life on the line. So that one day, Naomi can have a chance. If Naomi is going to have a chance, Ruth must give her life away. She gave up land, a name, an inheritance, even her family, and the potential of wealth so that Naomi could become rich. So we have seen this future kind of kinsman redeemer in Boaz. But we can also see the hidden redeemer of Ruth. But I want to mention to you one last redeemer. 
what I would call the real redeemer. You know, the only reason Boaz and Ruth could do what they did is because they were hoping in a better redeemer. They were looking forward to a redeemer that would one day actually be born in Bethlehem, that promised child. What they did not realize is they were actually the ancient grandparents of that redeemer that would one day be born. They had no idea. So Ruth and Boaz had a son. You could turn to the last chapter of four of Ruth, and you know what it'll show you there? As they had a son named Obed. Obed fathers Jesse. You know who Jesse fathers? David. And from there, we get the Redeemer, Jesus. So here's what is so beautiful. Here's what I want you to take away from today. That Ruth and Boaz point to the real Redeemer. Boaz paid Naomi's debt, and his wealth became hers. Jesus, he pays your debt, and he gives you all of his wealth. Boaz, he covers Ruth with his garment, and he made her his bride. Jesus covers us with his righteousness, and his life becomes ours. Ruth left all that she had and impoverished herself and suffered so that Naomi could be blessed. Jesus left his throne in heaven. He came and suffered so that you and I could be blessed. So I want to close with this question. Is this the one? Is this the one that we read about? Is he the one that's at the center of your life? Do you know Jesus as your kinsman redeemer? Because he, if he is not at the center of your life, what's going to happen? You will allow society and you will allow culture to define and to give you significance and worth. But the good news is that if you fully give your life to him like Ruth did, he will give it back to you with lasting purpose, meaning, and true joy. Charles Spurgeon says it great. He says, nothing teaches us about the preciousness of our Creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. So I want you to know, if you are a child of the Most High God, if that is you, if you are one of His children, there is nothing that can bring you greater significance than that. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and man, things... We're very, coming in today, we, we really had no idea. Sometimes things change. But Father, what you have showed us is that you are already there. And so we thank you for a great morning that, man, didn't go maybe as we had planned. But Father, you are always gracious. I'm thank, so thankful for a group of people that will just roll with the punches of things that happen. Because they enjoy being with each other and they enjoy spending time with you. So, Father, today, man, as we go out in such a beautiful day as you have blessed us with, may we think about and reflect on this idea that there was a kinsman redeemer for Naomi. But, Father, there is an even greater redeemer for us in your son. That he gave up everything. He took on our sin as if it was his own. And he turns around and blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Father, that Redeemer of your Son, Jesus, became impoverished so that we could become wealthy. And Father, I pray that we would always 
be in awe of what you do through the gospel in our lives. So, Father, thank you for sending him that would redeem us, that is redeeming us. And one day, as we even sang earlier, we is coming again. We rest in those promises. So it is in our Redeemer's name. And by the power of your spirit, we can pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.